This podcast is made possible by Workday and U.S. Bank. Hello, this is Joe Cardoso, CFO Keolis North America, and you're listening to the CFO Thought Leader Podcast. This is episode 377. Hi, it's Jack Sweeney. On today's show, we bring you a reprise episode where we remix popular interviews and insights from the past to create a more energetic episode. We begin now. It was not quite a hundred years ago that Donaldson Brown arrived inside the finance department of the General Motors Corporation. The future CFO of GM had distinguished himself years earlier by developing a return on investment formula for the DuPont Company, now GM's largest investor. It was that relationship that ultimately influenced Brown's decision to leave DuPont and spearhead the application of the concept inside GM's operations. And so a concept originally developed to shed light on the operations behind the manufacture of blasting powder and dynamite would become a central component of the automaker, whose rapid expansion became synonymous with the rise of the modern corporation. Fast forward a hundred years, and while it may be difficult to classify an imprint made by any one finance leader as being brown-worthy, it's not difficult to identify the class of finance leaders that is unquestionably having a brown-like impact on the evolution of the finance function. From Middle Market Media, this is CFO Thought Leader, where we speak to finance leaders about driving change within their organizations. Hi, it's Jack Sweeney. Welcome to CFO Thought Leader. I hope you don't mind me injecting some historical perspective in today's show. It was Winston Churchill who once said, the farther back you can look, the farther forward you're likely to see. And inside the realm of finance, I'd argue there's no better place and time to set our eyes upon than the original pairing of Donaldson Brown and GM CEO Alfred Sloan, a union minted in the early 1920s. It was then that the two executives set about repurposing financial concepts that were originally developed to serve another industry altogether. And we will return to the last century. But first, let's turn back the clock just nine years. We'll begin after these words, a few short words from our sponsor. Just as a house needs a good foundation, your business needs a solid technology foundation. At Workday, a different approach to finance technology is giving growing mid-size organizations a distinct advantage. Workday's flexible architecture means that when business conditions change, finance can easily make changes to business processes. 
To learn more about how a finance system from Workday supports mid-size organizations from the ground up, visit us at Workday.com. Workday, built for the future. The economy's unexpected plunge in 2008 allowed many finance leaders to garner more influence within their organization and enlarge their strategic roles as cost-cutting and workforce reductions became a necessity inside many companies. However, as time passed, to maintain that influence, finance leaders needed to demonstrate they could do more than just manage costs. In the wake of the downturn, many finance leaders were being handed a growth ultimatum. To keep their seats at the strategy table, finance leaders would need to demonstrate they could drive growth. And no one group of finance leaders were perhaps better prepared to answer the growth challenge more soundly than those inside the software as a service realm. What we realized is that we could be doing more in terms of our consumer engagements if we knew more about the customer. If your customer spent $10 with you last year, if you took away what they may have dropped and then you added what they may have added on, either an add-on or a cross-sell, how much are they paying you a year later? All right, so that's, and that's a really important metric to understand the health of your customer base. So customer experience is a huge part of what we do as a software as a service business. Each year they renew or at the end of each contract they renew and you have to rewin that business. The two key metrics for for us uh which I also care about on a on a daily basis is uh the number of customers uh using our services and then increasingly uh how well the customers take benefit of our services. Armed with such metrics as return on revenue, customer acquisition cost, and customer retention, SaaS finance leaders are busily advancing a more customer-centric model for finance. And we'd argue their collective influence is advancing that model today beyond the SaaS realm. Now, another customer-centric metric that has increasingly become embraced by finance is the Net Promoter Score, an index developed by the strategy firm Bain & Company to measure the willingness of customers to recommend a customer's products. Here's Bain & Company's partner, Rob Markey. You know, it's interesting because um, it turns out that many of Bain's earliest Net Promoter System clients discovered how powerful it was to involve the CFO and the finance organization in leading the charge. Um, there were other organizations that weren't as successful where they left it with marketing or um, worse yet with like the customer insights group. But you look at like Allianz and Schwab, which were two of the, the sort of big early successes with Net Promoter, early adopters of the full system. It was when their CFOs got heavily involved that the program actually took off, that they were able to accelerate progress. 
And I think the reason that CFOs have been among the highest impact champions in the net promoter system has been that they can establish this clear and simple link uh, between the customer loyalty and financial outcomes, you know, sort of the behaviors of customers that drive those outcomes. And before companies had the ability to get real-time and non-anonymous customer feedback, they just didn't have very many ways to get reliable indications of the impact of their investments in service or staffing or pricing or product features until they those things played out over a long period of time in the form of like attrition or cross-sell. Those things happen so long after the investments that it's actually kind of hard to attribute changes in attrition rates to the investments that were made. So what NPS did, and, and really the net promoter system, that this high-velocity closed-loop feedback, is that it gave finance leaders an immediate and early read on the impact of an investment that could then be used as the basis for financial projections or uh, you know, making a business case. Is this working? What impact do we think is going to happen based on the changes that we're seeing in the feedback? It, it's a very important way to uh, change the way you manage. We'll have more of our show on the growth ultimatum after these words from our sponsor. You want smart, clear, and honest guidance to help you meet the financial goals of your middle market business. With U.S. Bank, you have a partner who will help you find the right solutions to help your organization reduce payment costs, enhance control, improve cash flow, and expand your spend visibility. U.S. Bank's dedication to making ethical decisions and doing the right thing is at the heart of what they do, and their efforts haven't gone unnoticed. They've been named a 2017 World's Most Ethical Company for the third consecutive year by the Ethisphere Institute. To learn more, visit uspayment.com slash middle market. Will the precepts of customer-centric finance advance beyond the SaaS realm and alter finance at large? Just as Donaldson Brown's concepts have done? It's a good question. In his 1963 book, My Years with General Motors, GM CEO Alfred Sloan wrote, Financial method is so refined today that it may seem routine. Yet this method, the financial model, as some call it, by organizing and presenting the significant facts about what is going on in and around business, is one of the chief bases for strategic business. The great attention that Sloan gives to ROI, along with other financial concepts, is interpreted today by some business pundits, including this one, as a rebuttal to Peter Drucker, whose earlier book, The Concept of the Corporation, had marginalized the contribution of financial models within the rise of General Motors, while almost exclusively focusing on Sloan's management practices. According to Sloan, 
Within the modern corporation, there's always a chicken or egg causality dilemma when it comes to financial tools and management best practices. So far, SaaS CFOs are quickly acquiring an edge as they help to define and execute the management best practices required to adopt and deploy their customer-centric metrics. It's an edge Sloan understood well, a Brown-worthy contribution to finance that is quickly multiplying the influence of SaaS CFOs. Next, we thought we'd reprise uh, two tales of collaboration for you, or at least feature two of our CFOs and how they responded to our questions in regards to collaboration. The first is David Morris, CFO of Guardian Pharmacy, which has a fairly unique business model. Where it invests jointly in Guardian Pharmacy locations and operations across the country with local ownership groups. So as one would imagine, there's a high degree of collaboration across uh, this organization, particularly with the finance uh, team. Um, We begin our discussion with a question being posed to David. Now, you've been CFO of Guardian, the relative startup, and Guardian, this uh, fairly mature middle market firm. Can, can you share with us how the role of CFO has changed over time? When we initially began, you know, putting the financial and operational structure together, we had one location in Phoenix. And I'll tell you, they probably got sick of seeing some of us. Today, we've got 25 going to 30 locations, so it, it's, it's changed significantly. But from the onset, I would say our mindset has been to put the people, systems, processes, controls in place to run a large company. Uh, so I won't say you know we were ready to go public eight years ago, but we've been working to run this company even when we were 50 million in revenue, run it like a $500 million company. So that, that's kind of been our mindset. We've also worked hard to stay in front of the support structure, and it's tricky in a high-growth environment. How much do you invest? Can we get by with this? Do we need to invest in that? And I think we've done a much better job of that in, in this endeavor, and that's some of our learning from our, our previous company. The final thing, we've surrounded ourselves, I think, with, you know, Fortune 500 caliber advisors from the accounting, law firms, banking relationships, real estate advisors, and other consultants. So that, that's kind of how we've transitioned, you know, from one location to 25 going to 30. Guardian jointly owns the majority of its its locations with local ownership groups. And so as CFO, you arguably oversee quite a few joint ventures uh, today. How, how do you compare or maybe characterize your role to a CFO in a more traditional enterprise. Do you have more or less stakeholders? Depends on the size of the company. You could have some large companies that have have 10 owners. Obviously, public companies have thousands and hundreds of thousands of owners. But our business 
as you said, is made up of 25 going to 35, 40, et cetera, individual businesses. So we've got a diverse group of owners and constituents that we work with. So it's, you know, we've got that many board meetings, that many financial packets, tax returns, business plans, bank statements, et cetera. So I, I think it's, it's more complicated um, than, you know, a more traditional CFO role. But you know, we made that decision from day one to structure Guardian this way. We think it's worth the investment and, and additional time it takes to run the business this way because the local entrepreneur and their teams are focused on executing in their existing market. And I think it really helps them keep the, the eye on the ball. And I would say the results we are achieving are proving the strategy that we've embarked on to be effective. So it, you know, it requires a very collaborative process in working with our local entrepreneurial presidents. We look to them to guide the business, you know, make decisions and then carry it forward. And I'd say 99% of the time, what they recommend, we all agree with. I mean, and that, that's the beauty of our model because the local entrepreneur as well as Guardian, our interests are consistently aligned and that really helps the presidents take focus, make the right decisions to keep the business growing profitably. Our next tale of collaboration is an IPO tale. We've heard a, a number of intriguing IPO tales on the CFO circuit here, but few offered the deep reflection uh, into uh, the experience and its collaborative demands that Jim Tolan, CFO of Broadsoft, uh, brought to the subject. Here's Jim. So, yeah, it's really... Uh, it really is a nine month process. And so, and it is, uh, somewhat unique in that all roads lead in and out of the CFO. And so it's sort of the ultimate from a CFO standpoint in, uh, leadership and project management. When, uh, our board told me, right, let's go. I came back home and, you know, my wife said, well, I'll see you in nine months. And that was just about right. And, uh, and it's really because you know, you're the center point of being able to articulate the company's financial strategy, business strategy, even the business section in the 10K, uh, how to present the company, uh, to investors. Uh, it's also, you gotta manage the bankers, you gotta manage the lawyers. Uh, it's, uh, it's almost at, at times a, a goat rodeo with, uh, so many third parties involved with what you're doing. And even, when you're uh, you're close, you file. You're still aiming at a somewhat distant target. So you're you file. You're getting ready for the roadshow. Uh, you're about to go on the roadshow. You still don't know what the market conditions are going to be like when you actually price. And so it's a uh, and of course all your investment in terms of lawyers and bankers and time and your team and uh, socks and everything else. Are up front before you know you're going to get you're going to get out or not, um, and uh, you know one of the things that happened with us, is, you know, this was back in June of 2010, is we had the flash crash in May. So we went from a frothy IPO market in March when we filed to a um, very tentative market 
with things like the flash crash and the beginnings of the Greek crisis. And uh, I guess the anecdote I'll share is we were um, almost at the end of the road show. We were flying from Oregon to, I think, Minneapolis for our last day. And our lead investment banker was being pretty hedged with us on, hey, we're going to price in two days, but if we don't price, we'll have uh, the two of you smile and dial investors, see if we can get that done. And um, and so I said, all right, well, if we can't get it done the first day, what happens? Well, we try to get it done the second day. And so, well, what happens if we can't get it done the second day? Well, we probably, you know, need to postpone the offering. And and uh, so I said, so when do we do it again? And uh, they said, it's September. I said, okay, well, since we've done the road show, I presume we have to do the road show again. I said, no, 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 we have to start over. And so I looked at the bank on the plane, and this is after two and a half weeks of, you know, eight to ten meetings a day, uh, next city that night, next city that night. We were just exhausted and, and tired of hearing ourselves talk. And I said, you're one of the best investment banks in the world. <laughs> we're ready. You figure out how to get us done. And we ended up getting priced on the day, but it was a very choppy um, and, you know, I mean, you think about our IPO, we went out at nine, we traded $7.30 to a little over nine for six months and uh, without a lot of attention to us. And then all of a sudden, uh, you know, we announced our Q3 that year, our second quarter as a public company, and the stock just started moving. And, uh, you know, we were uh, in the mid-20s by the end of the year. So just, uh, you know, so we were flat for six months and then tripled in a matter of really weeks. Hey, it's Jack Sweeney. We've got a number of CFO interviews recorded in the queue coming your way in the not-too-distant future. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening, and don't forget, Thought Leader listeners, you can now go premium at cfothoughtleader.com.